Hey everybody, welcome back to the Liberty Blues Network. Um, today I'm not going to be joined by my usual co-host John and Steve. I'm just going to be playing you something we, I recorded at the California Convention. We had an LNC uh, debate, uh, LNC chair debate, with uh, Angela McArdle, my favorite, Tony Drazio, and Steve Dasbaj. Hope I pronounced that right. Um, so this is a great debate. Um, so we'll see where the future of the Libertarian Party is headed here. So check it out. Um, you know, if you're an eligible person, you, you'll be able to go to Reno and vote for the person you want to win, Angela McArdle, so that, you know, we could have a powerful Libertarian Party with a message that resounds to people who love liberty across the country. So enjoy this debate. Um, Tony DeRazio was calling in on Zoom because he was at the New York convention. Uh, I think he's a former chair of uh, New York, too. So, you know, uh, so he was over there. Um, they're talking about getting Larry Sharp running for governor in, uh, in New York. Man, that would be great. He's a, he, Larry Sharp's a hell of a guy. So he'll talk a little bit about that in there with his activism. Um, Steve Daspage, his son, I think he said, helped with Donald Rainwater's uh, campaign. And we always hear about Angela here. She's the one spearheading the fight against the vaccine passports here in Los Angeles. And is my choice, uh, hands down, for chair. Um, so here goes. Hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the next episode on the Liberty Blues Network. All right, everybody, I've got a new album coming out on April 15th. The title is Free People. There's a very special track on there, though. It's called Take Human Action. It's a re rework of the old folk tune, The Worried Man Blues. I turned it into Take Human Action, and I want to donate all the royalties to the Mises Caucus. So the more you listen, the more you give. It's a great way to give without spending a dime. I also invited a lot of the Meacocks from the Facebook group and a few other that I knew uh, to send in some tracks. So it's a group event, and there's several people playing on it. We had a big libertarian hootenanny. So please listen to it on April 15th, and listen often and give to the Mises Caucus. Thank you very much, and back to the show. Miracle designation was determined for the San Diego Freeway. 
the Libertarian Party of California for putting up with me sitting in a hotel room and talking to you over Zoom. Um, as, as, um, as Judge Gray said, um, we just nominated Larry Sharp to be the next governor of New York, and that's very exciting. I'm just going to say I got him at my convention and he didn't come to California this year. Uh, not not going to say that that was all me. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Tony DeRazio. I was the chair of the Libertarian Party of New York. I'm the current first vice chair and current communications director. I've been a libertarian since the days of the first Harry Brown run. I'm a life member of the party. I have been active on campaigns and inside the party doing outreach. I have grown the party and unified the party in New York. You're going to hear a lot of people talk um, in every LNC race about unifying the party and how we all can work together and fight against the state. I've done it. I will unify the party in New York. I have a plan to put libertarian principles in front. I have a plan to bring the party back together and start pulling against this cult of the other state and not against each other. I have a plan to support candidates and win elections, grow the membership, and actually set us up to be a professional organization and not just a grassroots uh, also ran in presidential races. I thank you for your time. I'm looking forward to this debate. And uh, in a very non-libertarian way, I'm going to yield the rest of my time. <laughs> I'm not here to sell you on a quick fix top three issues platform that's not going to solve our problems. I'm here to explain my vision for the Libertarian Party and explain how we can turn the LNC into a functional organization again so that we can work effectively to bring about a freer world in our lifetimes. I have a beautiful vision for the LP and you're all a part of it. I believe we can be a party that people bow to, a party that inspires people to cast off their ideological shackles to rise up and pursue liberty, and to vote libertarian. For decades, people in this party have argued over what the purpose of the party is. Is it to win elections, or is it to spread the message of liberty? Why can't it be both? Here's what we need to do at the national level. We adopt a strategic plan that amplifies the voices of candidates who use bold messaging running in winnable elections or high-profile elections like Jeff Hewitt's, and we throw every resource we have behind them. This will satisfy the needs of the people in the party who want to run bold messaging and information campaigns, while also satisfying the needs of the people who want to focus on getting libertarian candidates elected. This plan is going to get us serious exposure while also healing some of the rifts in the party. You can read about it more in the strategic plan summary I have at the Mises table. In order to pull this off, we need a leader, me, who is highly organized, highly motivated, knows how to motivate others, has leadership skills, conflict resolution skills, and someone who can navigate political crises like the lockdowns and vaccine mandates, someone who knows how to get media attention and knows how to speak to working class people who are fired up about getting their freedoms back. We'll start by fixing the messaging, which will in turn increase our membership Ten seconds. and expand our donor base. Thank you. Steve, rotating. We've heard quite a few comments 
Justin Amash today as well, talking about working together. And I think it's a fair statement that our country is increasing, increasingly involved in the polarization, it's climate, tribalization. Now it's really, we see creeping into the Libertarian Party. So with the so-called caucus wars. So my first question, Tony, you would be first, are you a member of a caucus? And uh, as a chair, what would you do to make this situation more constructive and less destructive? Great question. Um, I am a proud member of the uh, Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. Mostly because I love breakfast. In all seriousness, I, I don't have a caucus affiliation. I work with people across caucuses. I work with Mises people, I work with radical caucus people, I work with the Frags when they were a thing. I work with the, the Audacious Caucus. I, I don't care what your caucus affiliation is. If you are united against the state with me, we got, we got something we can work together. I can tell you that in New York, you don't hear much about caucus wars. We've got people who represent one caucus or another, and yet we're all fighting against the state because they are the much bigger enemy. It is the enemies of liberty, the authoritarian state that we need to be fighting against. And leading by example, leading from the front, as I have in New York, when we have had rifts in the past, that's how we're going to fix these caucus wars. I think it's really a non-issue uh, if we're all focused on fighting the state. Can you please repeat the question? Yes, talking about the climate polarization in our country, tribalism, and how many people feel it's creeping in with regard to the caucus war into the LP. So are you a member of the you know, caucus? And if so, or if not, what are your plans to make the situation less destructive and more constructive? I chair the California State PAC Mises Caucus. I am on the National Mises Caucus Board. I am a state organizer for California as well. I'm very involved in the caucus. Let me explain um, how we're going to heal some of the divide. The first is that we're going to adopt a strategic plan that covers messaging and candidates, because that's a real sore spot and that needs to be handled. And the other issue is that you need good leadership and good conflict resolution skills. And that's something that I have. So you need to be able to understand as a leader how to lead different types of people in different environments. Some people need directive leadership at certain times. You need to tell them exactly what to do, when to do it, and what the results are so that they understand what to expect and what the outcome should be. Sometimes people need supportive leadership, and this is probably a big failure that happened during the lockdowns. People needed to be encouraged at the LNC level to speak out against it, not browbeaten or chastised when they were nervous about it. But you've got to go in and actually support people and meet them where they're at and help them rise to their potential. And that is a great way to diffuse conflict at the national level or in any board meeting. This is basic organizational leadership. And when you're in a crisis like that, you make short decisions, just a period at a time, maybe one week at a time. You navigate people through changes like that carefully. And what that, what that does is it avoids people becoming angry and fighting because they disagree. You've got to go a little bit at a time so that we can all get on the same page and feel supported and you know loved and appreciated and that sort of thing. Um, and you certainly, you certainly need to have a vision and you need to get everybody on board. So you need to be an articulate communicator and you need to be a very patient person 
and you need to have some mediation skills because we have a lot of different personalities, and that's okay. But if you don't have those skills, then we often get set up for failure. And planning is really important so that everybody knows what they're supposed to do, and then we don't fight over that.
please. Okay. The way that the LNC is operating right now, and it has been in recent history, is incredibly ineffective. What we need to do is have committees working together at the very beginning so that we can maximize our potential, so that we can have more to offer the ballot access states than just finances. Certainly we're going to expand our donor base and give money to them, but they also need better support. They need viral media attention, they need earned media, they need training, they need issue campaigns, and, and things like the trucker convoy and the anti-mandate initiative, because those are things that people are excited about. And when we have our state and county affiliates spearheading those sort of projects, it inspires people to actually join the party, sign on, and support our candidates. So if we can actually do those things at the national level so that we maximize our potential and work in a synergistic manner, we're gonna have so much more to offer our states and places where, where ballot access is, is a challenge. I am really excited about getting the LNC to work together in a synergistic manner so that we can get more assets out to our states. And we also need to provide more trainings through learning management systems so that people can get the resources they need online. And we will do that by implementing an internal marketing campaign so that the states have better relationships with the national party. Thank you. Ballot access rodeo uh, three times before, if you count the uh, Jorgensen campaign. Uh, we made 50 states all four times. And you do that by having a plan put together well in advance, looking at every single state, what is the best, most cost effective way to get that state done. And sometimes it's run a candidate two years earlier to get the votes needed to get permanent ballot status. Sometimes it's going for party status instead of individual status. Sometimes it involves right, uh, recruiting petitioners and sending in petitioning teams. Sometimes it involves sending in organizers to work with local volunteers. Every state is unique, every state is different, and you have to plan for every state, and you don't do it at the last minute. You do it well in advance because something always goes wrong. Always. I remember the time that in Alaska, we kept getting these reports that the drive was on track, the drive was on track, and we didn't really believe them. And so finally, we had to send somebody up to Alaska to the organizer's home, asked to see the petitions, and found out there were no petitions. That person hadn't been doing anything, and we had to rush people in there to get that job done because somebody was lying about it. So you have to assume that things can go wrong and have plans in place to be able to deal with that. But the real key is to have a solid place plan in place well in advance so that you can organize your resources, make sure the petitioners are used most effectively, and to make sure you've recruited a good team of petitioners to get the job done. Thank you. Tony, same question. Actually, a very complicated question, and a lot of people don't think about this in, in, in these terms, but I'm going I'm to lay it out for you, kind of how it's happened in New York. There's temporary ballot access and there's permanent ballot access. Temporary ballot access is what we in New York, at least, and in a lot of other states are petitioning for every two years, four years, every time we try to get candidates on the ballot, because we don't have that official party status. So we're out there at public markets, knocking doors, doing whatever we can to get the 45,000 or however many signatures we need to get our candidates on the ballot. It's what we're going to be doing over the next 
six to 12 weeks here in New York. That's great. That solves our problem today. That solves our problem for this election. And we need to do that because we need to get our candidates in front of people. But once we do that, we need to make sure we get our candidates supported and figure out how to get the permanent ballot access, the party access, by focusing on those ballot access races. Now, there have been some great initiatives coming out of the LNC. The Frontier Project comes to mind, where there are aggregated resources and funds that will support multiple candidates. We need to bring that national, and we need to do it in states where the low-hanging fruit of liberty isn't there. It's where liberty's on the top of the trees. Places like New York and California. We're both in a very similar boat. We're both way low on the candle list of, of liberty. This is what we need to do. This is the way. We need to plan for our long-term futures, and that is that includes ballot access. The four-year hamster wheel that we get on to run ballot access campaigns for the presidential race has really got to stop. Part of that is going to be expanding membership and our movement so that people support us consistently, and part of that is going to be managing the litigation of these ballot access cases much better, because I especially believe in New York that that Larry Sharp's ballot access case was poorly mismanaged. No fault of Larry's, he has definitely complained about it. Uh, we've got to look to a vision for the future and inspire people. That is going to be a huge part of retaining ballot access permanently. Litigation is part of that process. You look at, again, every state and, and do litigation where it makes sense, do permanent ballot drive where it makes sense, provide the support necessary to get those votes. That's what we've been doing for years and have gradually built up. So we have far more states with ballot access today than we did 20 years ago. And that's because we've tackled those states exactly. one at a time uh, and built it. Building membership makes it easier because every state has more resources to do those drives. Certainly. Uh, speaking specifically to the New York lawsuit, on which I'm also a plaintiff alongside Larry Sharp, we, we've um, been fighting the state, and we are still fighting the state, and we currently hope to get our ballot access back, um, the, the ballot access that was stolen by a state budget writer in New York in, uh, under the cover of uh, COVID-19. The one other thing I will say is that as much as we don't want to just throw money at things, the chair's position is a fundraising position, and it's one I'm comfortable with. Thank you. Thank you. Moving on, uh, the next question is from Steve Tommy and then Angela. In your list of priorities for the Libertarian Party, where do you rate fundraising, and do you have a successful rate of record of fundraising? Please explain. Well, I put fundraising right along with membership because that's where our resources come from to do everything else. Uh, the more members we have, the more donors we have, the more money we're able to raise. Uh, as for our record, um, when I was initially elected as chair, uh, we were raising we raised $800,000 that year. When I finished my term as chair, we raised $2.5 million. Uh, during the 2000 year, when I was executive director, we raised $3.3 million. Um, and we raised uh, 3.5 million during the uh, uh, presidential campaign. So uh, 
I have a record in terms of being able to raise money. I'm very comfortable talking to major donors. We did Project Archimedes. We raised seed capital, I believe, around $150,000 uh, by making a whole bunch of donor calls between myself, with myself, the executive director, and the donors uh, to uh, to raise that fund, those funds. Thank you, Tony. Fundraising. Uh, fundraising is, I hate to say it, but our number one priority, and it's got to be. We are playing in a very expensive game, and it's getting more expensive every single year. Gubernatorial races, congressional races, presidential races that we cannot avoid are expensive. Raising our profile is expensive. I was Larry Sharp's deputy director of development, uh, where we raised six figures in 2018. I certainly am not taking all the credit for that. Uh, we had uh, the best candidate in the nation uh, in Larry Sharp. Uh, he was a fantastic candidate and he really deserves uh, all the credit for that fundraising. We've all, as chair and then as also as vice chair, we brought a uh, monthly donor fundraising program to, to New York. Seems simple enough and nobody had done it before. And that's one of those basic things that should be done. I want to make sure that we're doing the basic things. I'm certainly comfortable with fundraising role. I've done it many times before. Thank you. Thank you. Angela, fundraising. Fundraising is very important. I do have experience fundraising on both of my congressional campaigns with political action committees and with the LA's anti-mandate initiative. We are about to begin fundraising training for some of our LA County people. I anticipate we're going to bring in about six figures for the anti-mandate initiative within the next three months. Thank you. Steve, 30 seconds further, if you wish. Uh, just uh, the, L the LP is not the only uh, organization that I've done fundraising for. Uh, I've done uh, fundraising for uh, Downsize DC to help with them with their initiatives. I've also done uh, fund was director of development for um, uh, one of the uh, theater companies in uh, the DC area, raising money for that. In fact, uh, it, it was very fun to, to uh, raise money for uh, a liberal theater company using the fact that the federal government was going to take our uh, microphone fun, uh, frequencies away and therefore we had to buy new microphones. So, thank you. Tony, rebuttal if you wish on racing, 30 seconds. Absolutely. Um, I, I would like to add that the LP already has a very good fundraising team, although I, I understand that the director has uh, announced a resignation. So this is something that we're already going in the right direction on in the LP, and I intend to continue that. Thank you. And Angela? No? Okay, thank you. Moving on. The Libertarian Party will never become a major party until its candidate for president is included in the national presidential debate. We tried in 2012 with a lawsuit uh, we had some pretty good precedent, it didn't go anywhere. What are your plans to get the LP presidential candidate involved in the national presidential uh, debates? We'll start with Tony, then Angela, then Steve. That is a fantastic question, and I'm glad you asked it. I think a lot of the things that, that I've been discussing all along, raising our profile, making sure that we have a very principled-based party are going to contribute to that. But speaking specifically to that issue, getting the presidential candidate in the debate, we need somebody who's got a high enough profile, 
somebody who is well-known enough or can get well-known enough quick, quickly enough to do well in, in the poll. The reality is that the debate commission is a private commission, private commission, that is there to support the duality. So in order for us to bust down that door, we better have one hell of a candidate in 2024. We better have a party structure that isn't just grassroots, but ready to be a scalable and professional party structure. One that can actually support a candidate on a national level, financially, with a strong platform, and with personality. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next would be Angela. My hope for 2024 is that we run a presidential candidate who's been on Joe Rogan a few times and Tim Pool's show. the power 
where we are, we have the platform that really resonates with most of America. We already do have that platform. We just need to have our activists and our candidates put that up front and really deliver that message for us strongly. Thank you. Thank you. Final thought, Angela? If Justin Amash or Spike Cohen get the presidential nomination, they will have my enthusiastic support. But let me tell you, I do have a favorite, and I am very honest. And that's one thing that you can always count on, is I will be honest with you, and I won't try to hide any of my opinions or feelings, so you will always know exactly where I'm at. And there is no way that I will be tipping the scales. I will not be doing anything secretive behind the scenes. You all know me, you know where I stand, and you know how I operate. Um, yeah, let's, let's elevate the level of trust in this party so that we're not suspicious of each other. That's gonna be a big help in every area. Yeah. I think the last thing is that we need to have a party that is large enough and strong enough and visible enough that our candidate is able to get attention whether or not he or she brings uh, outside attention in. If they are able to bring that in, fantastic. If they don't, we still need to be, be able to get our message out. So we need to not depend on the fact that a candidate might come in with an outside base of support and focus on making sure that our message is going to get out no matter who we nominate. Next question. Gloves coming off a little bit. Under what, under what conditions? Under what circumstances would you believe it would be appropriate to remove a member of the LMC? Start with him. Decorum. <laughs> no, not decorum. <laughs> but decorum is actually really important because you need to be able to have a healthy working environment. And a big part of that is the chair setting the tone for the rest of the executive committee and working behind the scenes to de-escalate conflict, not giving anyone a cold shoulder, and keeping all of your officers in the loop. When I, it's gonna take a whole lot for me to remove someone and I'm gonna push it out as long as I can so that they can have a proper trial and feel heard. Uh, obviously, physical threats of violence, theft, um, you know, property rights, property destruction, things like that. Uh, destroying party assets, stealing party assets, or involving yourself in a, in a big white coup. That's the sort of thing that's going to get you But you know, I can't actually do that as chair. There is no magic button that I push that eats someone off of the executive committee. This is a formal process that I would have to very carefully, neutrally navigate. Thank you. Thank you. I served on the LNC for 13 years and, and executive director for war, and I don't think this issue ever even came up um, because people understood that you had to work together, you had to communicate with each other. Um, you know, if you get to the point where you're looking at people feeling that there, there needs to be a removal, things have gotten out of hand. And so it really is the job of the chair in particular to set that tone and for the rest of the committee to come in with an attitude of cooperation. Uh, so yes, there could be cases, Angela mentioned a couple of extreme cases, uh, but uh, 
And I think that it would be highly, highly unusual to have that kind of, it should be highly, highly unusual to face a case like that. Um, and so uh, the best, best uh, solution is prevention and not get to that point in the first place by working to establish trust and communication and cooperation uh, among the uh, board. Board answer. Fraud, theft from the party, violence or threats of violence. That's what I think of the criteria to evict someone from the party. And I'm gonna tell you, during my time as LPNY chair, we had to evict two people from the party. For two of those, um, both threats of violence and fraud against the party. So I've got experience doing it. But that criteria needs to be narrow and well-defined. And it was. It was very clear what the threats of violence were. It was very clear what the fraud was that was committed. And there was a process that wasn't just the chair running the meeting. In fact, I handed the gavel off to someone else because I needed to testify to the fraud. Sometimes you got to do that as chair. Sometimes you got to hand the gavel to your vice chair and speak back. Fraud, theft from the party, violence or threats thereof. That's it. Thank you. Angela, any further words? I would say that dereliction of duty is also something that can be considered, although I don't see that happening recently at the national level. That means completely dropping the ball, not doing your work, ghosting the committee, and not showing up to meetings. I don't see that happening, but if that were to happen, for example, like in the treasurer or secretary role, like that, that can't be, that's, that's crucial. You need those positions yeah, to run the organization. And it's also very important to have a post-mortem after someone is removed so you understand the failure, because the failure is often with the executive committee. Thank you, Steve, final word, 30 seconds. I just want to reiterate one thing that Tony said, is that um, when, the, when the chairs, you have, as chair, you are both the chairman of the committee when you're having meetings, you also have a CEO role. And it's important to remember which hat you're wearing. And if you are in a situation where you have to do an advocacy position like Tony recommended, yes, you have to pass the, the, uh, the, the uh, gavel off to the vice chair and frankly move out of your seat so that it's clear that you are not the presiding officer, but rather you're taking that uh, advocacy role uh, in that CEO role. Thank you, Tony, final word. I just wanted to uh, put a little clarification on, we've certainly had people who have ghosted their roles on the uh, LPNY and had been removed because they just didn't show up. We have, a, we've had a couple of those uh, throughout the last couple of years, not, not a ton, uh, it's not a huge problem. That's different than removing somebody from the party. Removing somebody from a leadership role and removing somebody from the Libertarian Party are two very different things. Thank you. The last question, and we would go with Steve, Tony, and then Angela. Uh, a little bit different. What qualities, what qualifications would you look for in staff members to the LNC? Well, as chair, your primary uh, staff person that you are looking at is the executive director, because that's the person that the rest of the staff is reporting to. Uh, the chair certainly should have a role in discussing 
uh, some of those positions with the executive director, uh, and certainly should be in a position of vetoing. But it's not, I don't, I don't believe it's the job of the chair to go out and hire people that are going to be then serving under someone else. That that executive director needs to be actively involved, and it really needs to be that individual making the hire with the advice and consent of the chair, and in turn, the advice and consent of the LMC, if you're talking about uh, high-level staff uh, positions, director positions. Um, the, uh, the other types of roles, clerical roles and that, uh, frankly, is primarily the uh, job of the executive director to make those hires, again, with the chair providing oversight just to make sure that uh, uh, nothing to untoward is going on. Thank you. Tony, same question. As Steve just said, the primary hire that a chair would have to be concerned with is an executive director, and that I'm going to look for someone who's going to be a leader, somewhat like I am. Um, one, looking for people who are qualified in their roles, not necessarily great libertarian range or master, master of every, everything, because that is a trap that we fall into in the libertarian party. We feel like we have to be able to do everything. We have to be able to be activists and fundraisers and petitioners and candidates and committee members, and, and that's, not, that's not the case. We need people who know fundraising. We need people who know messaging. We need people who can really work in the membership areas. We need, I need an executive director who understands that, but doesn't necessarily want to micromanage each and every one of those roles. I am not somebody who's going to micromanage everybody. I don't have the damn time. Nor, I believe in having trust in your staff, and trust in your staff means that they have to be confident. Thank you. Um, Antoine? Libertarian. This is a really important part. We need to hire staff members who are actual libertarians. Because when we don't, we have serious cultural problems at a national level. And if people need to have serious experience in a related field, not that exact field, because this is a difficult role to fill, because there is no other libertarian party for us to hire from. We're the only one in the country. So they need to have experience in a related field, and they need to have the ability to work well with others. This is a big deal. You've got to hire people who can actually work in a work environment. I would agree with the notion that you have to hire people who are libertarian, who understand uh, what their job is, what we're trying to accomplish, because uh, they're ex otherwise they're, ex they're gonna have trouble translating their experience. If you're talking about roles that involve communication, such as fundraising, uh, marketing, communications, and the like. If you're talking about somebody who's going to be opening the mail and processing checks, that's not as, as, as important a fact function. Okay, but I think that for libertarian, for uh, those, those director level roles, it's key that they be libertarians, and they need to have relevant experience so you know that they're gonna do a good job. Thank you, Tony. Wrap up 30 seconds. I think it is important to have somebody who is a libertarian, especially in the director level roles. I, I, I want to emphasize that. The competence is the more critical piece here. I think a lot of us have had jobs where 
we're forced to do things that we don't necessarily want to do because we're out of the role. I think the ability to have an interpersonal relationship professionally is something that is a valuable quality. But I really need them to become in the role and able to be done for the Libertarian Party. Thank you. The talent pool in our party is incredible. And you will see that if you're willing to look past just the few people you know, or your caucus, or your like internal party ideological lines. There are actually a lot of brilliant strategists, people who work in development, marketing experts. We don't need to look outside of the sphere of libertarianism to run the Libertarian Party. I promise you we'll be able to do it with the utmost professionalism and an enthusiasm and care. Thank you. Hell yeah! with our amazing staff, 
and with our affiliate party chairs to grow the party, to increase fundraising, and to get more candidates running, more candidates elected, and more visibility for the party. So please visit my website, stevedasbach.com. That's stevedasbach.com, which will have more information. And if you want a phone call or exchange emails, there's a way for you to sign up there to uh, have me give you a call. Thank you, and uh, go Liberty. We are living in unprecedented times. We've had a year of lockdowns. We're fighting vaccine mandates at the national level. Inflation is through the roof, but the American people are finally ready to fight it. We can't afford to fumble the ball again. If we're gonna make it, this is it. This is the time, and we have so much potential in this room all across the country. We can be a party that people trust, that they take pride in and value. A party that inspires people, right? To pursue personal freedom with unmatched passion, to run for local office, to define mandates and dictatorial edicts, to localize and nullify unconstitutional laws. But we have to get that message out. Messaging is so important. We have to take our responsibilities seriously as stewards of this party and understand we're in a battle for the soul of this country and a battle for the future of our children. We can't be all things to all people, but I believe we can be a beacon of hope to people who are searching for freedom and a strong platform for libertarian candidates. We can, get, we can secure ballot access, grow our membership, expand our donor base if we adopt a solid strategic plan and have someone who can govern and, and lead and manage an LNC. So important. We can become an incredible force at the national level. We challenge the cult of the omnipotent state. We're like David throwing a stone in Goliath's face. And I'm ready to help you take down some tyrants. So I ask you to elect me. Thank you for being here. We have a we have a dinner right now and the game.